I'm Chris Riley, editor of Sweet Code and founder of Fixate. I just so happen to like food and software, so I'm going to connect with developers and engineers at their favorite places to eat and chat about what it's like to build modern applications. This is Developers Eating the World. All right, episode five of Developers Eating the World, and I finally locked down Adam Berg. Um, and what's special about the location that we're at today, it's Cafe 13. Right attached to Cafe 13 is Connects, which is a co-working space, which is officially the new headquarters of Suicode and Fixate. And Adam is also a member there. So we were able to finally connect. Um, and Cafe 13 is just a really cool bar, um, eatery type place. Um, Adam ordered a Cobb salad or I ordered breakfast for lunch. But the big reason I ordered the breakfast for lunch, and you, you get the... Um, what is it? The BLT, right? Uh, I got the Cubano last time. And that last was time? Good. Yeah. So the bacon here is like dipped in sugar and unicorn tears. Yeah, it's it, something, it's something <laughs> it is, else. So it good. is addicting. It's crack. Um, free range unicorns, of course, not yeah. just caged up unicorns. But um, so good to finally connect with you, Adam. Um, we were talking when we first met, um, and it kind of stuck with me. We talked about a lot about compliance because you deal with compliance and compliance is usually associated with not getting anything done <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> but, i could see that absolutely <laughs> but you're not the kind of guy who would who would go for that so why do you think it's why do you think compliance in modern software delivery is not just an inhibitor sure um so i think compliance is actually the kind of fundamental piece as we go forward in the industry. Um, so if you look at in the past, like all these giant data breaches, um, like with Sony, with um, Ashley Madison, with all these kind of big sites, um, people have been exposed, like on Ashley Madison, their identities have been exposed because their email and their passwords have been exposed. Um, you've seen data breaches, um, what was it? A couple of last year, it was the the credit union, like the the, the auditors that provide you your credit score. Oh yeah. right, yeah, uh, e Equifax or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, they, yeah. and then their their consolation prize was, hey, we'll give you free <laughs> free, free LifeLock or yeah, something yeah. like that. And, and so, you know, compliance and how we handle and secure and store and transmit information. I think is becoming even more important. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like, if you don't do it now, then you get stung by it later. Right. Isn't it better not to get stung? But I'm glad yeah. you brought up Astral Medicine because the other thing that you mentioned, which I was kind of like, really? A lot of people, when they think about like outsourced dev, yeah. they think of that, They people just don't have really good things to say about anything right. outsourced dev. And it's specifically related to Ashley Madison. Most yeah. of the dev was not done in-house. Yeah. And some of the development practices were really bad, like right. storing passwords and clear text. Yeah. But you've had a different experience. Yeah. And I'm curious, how did you make outsourced dev work? Yeah. So the trouble of outsourced dev really comes down to um, your management and your management ability. So if you take a non-technical engineer, a non-technical manager, and you put them in charge of a bunch of engineers, they're not gonna know um, the differences, the nuances, and the technology of, of what they're working on. 
um, they're just going to be like, okay, get it done. What makes somebody technical enough? Do you think? Um, I think taking a because really, that's your role, right? Yeah. Like you're, I, I think, you're very used to managing. Yeah, I've spent the last three years managing teams almost, and um, before that, I just did straight up software development, API development, back end, front end, all across the stack, full stack, um, Node, Ruby, JavaScript. Um, I've worked for like Sling TV, United Health Group, U.S. government. Um, a lot of big companies and, um, and a couple of startups, of course. Um, and I think that the, the key difference with offshore teams is that they need a lot of guiding principles and they need a really heavy hand. Um, What's which heavy sounds, hand mean? Which sounds bad. It sounds like micromanagement. But to some extent, it can be. And um, because you're dealing with culture, you're dealing with um, people's personalities, you're dealing with different levels of skill, and you have to deal with communication barriers. Right. Oh, thank you. Look at that. Lunch just came. Oh, salad. All right. Um, so, oh, that does look good. Okay. Sorry. So, <laughs> heavy hand is, is really like, you have to get to know your team, you have to understand what the people are good at and how how you need to communicate and guide with them, guide them to delivery. Which is interesting because I think most people who would be managing, who are technical enough to manage an outsourced dev team are not necessarily interested in getting to know the team, right? Yeah. Which we always know. I mean, there's always a problem with when, you know, it, it takes a unique personality to be a coder that can go into management. Yeah, absolutely. And I've met some of my best managers have been technical and are technical. Like, um, at my firm, um, my manager, he's been technical for the last 10, 15 years. He went into management and into directorship. And, like, he, he's able to sell millions and millions of dollars of software. Um, he's a consultant. Um, just because like, he can understand the technology, but he, he can communicate it in a way to um, business stakeholders that makes sense for them without going into all the technical minutia. And so really kind of understanding what the right message is to the right audience is really important. Yeah. And so that's in a nutshell, my job breaks down to mostly managing communication and it's email, phone call, diagrams, charts, flowcharts, all sorts of different outlets of communication. And then kind of being a living example, an embodiment of the kind of software we want to create. And so it sounds like it's like, oh, Adam, you just, you know, sit around on the phone all day, and that's true many days, <laughs> especially last Yeah, but you're able to work wherever you want, um, nice. But then there's so many other days where it's like, out of that I get to also focus on um, writing really great code, tackling the hardest problems, and giving kind of the junk work that I don't like. Like, oh, go build a UI and make it talk to this API, and blah, blah, blah. And do, you, do you miss the code? No. <laughs> I, I get a code all the time, man. Like, no. I get my level of, I get code on whatever I want. 
I get complete autonomy. So if there's a feature I want to go build, I just go build it. Hmm. I'll That's tell cool. my team I'm building this. I usually pick what I think is the most difficult, the most challenging, um, that kind of thing. Do you think there's like, it's the difference between a coder and an architect in a way? Oh yeah. Never fancied myself a very good coder, but I think I'm a decent architect. <laughs> I'm more of an architect. So, I'm in a really interesting position. It's a, I don't have a project manager. I don't have a lot of that supporting stuff. It's basically me, some offshore people, and a business person that's kind of got a clue, kind of doesn't, and working with them to... So are you the dude from Office Space? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but but untechnical. So I I, I, I can write some code. Technical. What are you most excited about with in like modern dev practices? Hmm, that's a good question. Has there been anything that's just jumped out to you? Like okay. Well, I really like the GraphQL. Okay. Um, so going away from REST and and building. Um, APIs using GraphQL. So essentially what you can do is um, instead of writing a very specific endpoint uh -huh. to get you very specific set of information, you can um, write basically like a query interface to your data. Kind of like SQL, but you can run that on the front end. You can do it authenticated, you can do it securely, and it allows you, so if you're a back-end developer, you basically expose whatever data you want. But then, as a front-end developer, you can say, I need um, all of my articles, dot my posts, dot the authors, dot blah. And you can do that in one query call. You don't need to go, okay, Make this API call, for the, and then yeah. wait for another API call, and then loop through that, get all the IDs, and then make another API call. You can just like string it all together in one call. And then the back end can take your query and say, here's the most optimal way I can respond to this. I can actually batch all these things together. I can cache these things. And you can actually transpose these really efficient queries. And you can do that for reads, and you can do that for writing data. <coughs> I never thought about it. I mean, I'm familiar with GraphQL, yeah. but I never thought about it in terms of, like, does, it, does that also make API administration easier? Oh, yeah. It's harder at first, because not a lot of people know how to do it. But interesting. You can build some really interesting APIs. You can do... Essentially what you're doing is you're exposing your data, you're exposing data logic, and then you're allowing your front-end developers to execute on that, get the records that they need, get them in the associations that they need, um, without having to go back and write more APIs to support every type of object, all the relationships. You kind of basically map your data model to your API, put in your authorization rules, depending on how they work. Um, and go from there. Huh. How do you document that, though? Like, how do you... It's self-documenting. Oh. You can expose a query interface where you can say, query, all right, give me a post with this ID, 
All right, post dot. Well, what are my method options here? Where are my attribute options? And you can just easily just query that. Oh. So you can actually easily expose all the information. You can um, comment all the attributes. So you can say, this thing is a GUID to a post. This thing is a comment object. This thing is whatever. So as we build more applications at the firm, I'm hoping we can use that more because it's, it makes things a lot easier. Now, what about the um, the Kubernetes uh, fanatics, the the world of Kubernetes, the world of microservices? You know, what are your opinions on that? Um, I think like Kubernetes and Dockerization and containers and all that, it, it's great for ops and great for building and deploying code and and replicating things in lower environments, um, like consistency matching your lower environment to what your production environment is. Parity. Yeah, parity. Yeah. A lot of people don't talk about the parity benefits. Um, I really like the idea of um, you can take an image, like a Docker image, and you can go all the way from local dev all the way to prod with that image, um, with that Docker container. I like that idea. Um, I think microservices are heavily abused. Abused? Uh, abused. Why? Um, I've seen so <laughs> many complicated architectures of like, we have a user service over here and it does one very simple thing and then we go wrote, we wrote another microservice over here and it does another thing that uses the user data, but so you get this really weird circular dependency where the user service has to call the other service to call the other service to get you a simple set of data. And, and I've, I've come into firms where They've like just taken it and taken every essentially like data object they have and made that microservice. So think about like a relational data model, right? And just make all of those each table a data model, each table uh, a microservice. Well, did they do that for like um, organizational purposes, where to have smaller teams for each service, or? Yes. Was it kind of just chasing the fad? It, both. And I've seen both. And it's just like, it makes sense if you have high volume transactional data, so you put it in a container and then optimize that container for whatever the use case is. Is it load? Is it speed? Are you like doing things like image processing and you need a lot of computational power? Then it makes sense to build a, a REST API, a containerized API. Um, as a microservice because then you can say, okay, 90% of my traffic and resource utilization goes to this one little microservice. And so I can scale those with the memory I need, I can scale them with the system resources that I need, but then everything else is just inside one app. Yeah. Um, I think and, and that's the way I think about, like, that's, that's like an SOA architecture. Yeah. Um, and that's the way I think microservices should be done, is you just rip out the pieces that are the most painful. Search, uh, you know, file processing, ingest, ETL, things like that where it's computationally expensive or there's a better technology that doesn't make sense to the rest of your stack to do that. Like, for example, if you're doing an ETL, maybe you're a, a Ruby shop and um, maybe it would make sense to write something in C++ to process like hundreds of thousands of Excel files. 
Um, and so rather than just having all of your ETL process in Ruby or rewriting your entire service in C++, you, you containerize it, you set it off to the side as a, a service that you can then go, go consume. Yeah, I think some organizations, like that's more from like purely architectural, I mean the way you're thinking about it is like what is gonna make what benefits can we gain from microservices that are going to improve our application versus how can we do microservices and make our application work within that paradigm, which I think some organizations are absolutely guilty of, especially when it's pitched as kind of the answer for faster software delivery, which in many cases, I guess, you know, it is, but... At the same time, like you said, it's a what headache for debugging though? It's like, what service did the error come from? I, I've, I've had that. I just issue learned about before. contracts. Like the way you test the microservices yeah. is yeah with AVI contracts. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's all new to me. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah, but it is an added layer of complexity. Yeah, it's painful sometimes. It's just like. All right, now I have 10 systems to set up to get my local dev environment going. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay, so the... And it's like, you, you built a simple app that a thousand people are gonna consume internally and you're using microservices. Really? Really? Like, you're not streaming video, you're just entering some text on a screen. Like, I've seen that. It's like, why do you build microservices? It's fun. <laughs> And you get to tell people you've done it. It's a resume building skill, is what some of those have been. It's like you uh, built that. I think a lot of the new evolutions in the DevOps space have been partly that. But it, you know, I'm a big believer in change. Like you can't look at change over a short period of time. You have to look at it over a long period of time. And over a long period of time, it gets very real. Like you said, you you do the right thing for the. The, the problem you're facing versus just you know just trying to do the new thing because it's new. So this bacon pairs with my whiskey flight extremely well. Oh cool. It's cracked. Do they make that in the house? The bacon? What? Do they make the bacon in the house? I know they have two smokers in Oh yeah they do. Yeah. They told me I talked to somebody they oh they have smokers here? Yeah two. They have two giant smokers. Oh, I've had is the bacon. And like I said, all I know is... That's what, how they make the Cubanos. They smoke brisket. Oh, nice. Uh, not brisket, but they smoke pork. They smoke pork outside. And um, that's how they get the, the brisket for the hash, for the... I think they have like a spare rib on the menu. They have... Um, I mean, for a coffee shop, this place yeah. does really and I haven't, dang good job. I know, and I haven't tested everything yet. But I literally order the breakfast just to get the bacon. They opened up, what, a month and a half ago? Mm -hmm. I've tried almost everything on the menu and gained about 15 pounds. <laughs> I'm dead serious. Well, I, yeah, when we, when we joined the workspace, I'm like, okay, I'm either gonna gain a lot of weight or I'm gonna starve because I'm gonna try to avoid all the food. Um, and I'm leaning towards the gaining the weight, so. And now, yeah, and the drinks are good too. So what about, in addition to like the compliance concerns about development, what about security? Like is that a developer job? What do you think about this whole, the whole shift left? 
I'm not familiar with shift left. So shift left is the idea that developers are more and more consumed and concerned about things like security, compliance, sure. um, quality. So they start running more tests than they did previously. Things like that. Oh yeah. Uh, I haven't heard it called that. Um, there is a huge shift, uh, at least in our organization, of um, essentially automated infrastructure to audit code. Um, so we, we've implemented um, auditing software where we do security scans and vulnerability scans and, and uh, essentially checking for weaknesses in the code. And then I get a big email report. Um, and essentially what we do there is I get a big report saying, all right, here's all the different issues that we've identified in your system. Go fix them. And we're integrating tools into our IDs or, um, to actually scan code as you're writing it. To really kind of give you ideas of like, kind of like linting, but from a security perspective. Like what? Linting. Oh, what's linting? Uh, linting is um, like format syntax checking for hmm, okay. JavaScript. Right. Like we set a style of, of how we want the code to be written. Right. And um, we run a linter to make sure it all looks the same, essentially. Huh. So from that respect, well, that's kind of tied to compliance, right? It's it's code quality and compliance. And so we do that as part of our security review. Um, now what now what happens if a developer like what if what if something goes wrong and it's and it's like a glaring issue? You know, how do you guys deal with that with your team? Like, do you do you put somebody on a pedestal and say? And I'll point at them and laugh, or do you like how do you deal um, with my team? I, <laughs> I I noticed a bunch of APIs where we were super vulnerable to SQL injection attacks, and I'm like, okay, this is fine until we go to production. I found a bunch of SQL injections in our app, and um, I knew know who did it because I have Git lens on Visual Studio Code, so it tells me each line of code and who's responsible. So I know who's responsible. But I reached out to the team instead of that one person. I said, hey, you got all this code. It's super vulnerable. Like, they're using string interpolation to a query. And I'm like, you're not even using parameterized queries, which is like basic 101. Like, <laughs> that's a huge smell, y'all. So I found all the places in the app they were doing it, and I was like, all right, this needs to be done by 523 which is before a launch date. And it's high priority after all the critical defects. Is this a critical security defect? This table will be reserved. You've got time. All right. I just want to let you know. Okay, cool. Thanks. Um, so it was kind of a team remediation effort. I don't believe in throwing people under the bus. Yeah, well, and I don't think that works in yeah. modern teams. Yeah. I don't think that works in any teams, modern or not. Like, you make someone feel like crap for... Oh, I did something stupid. No, the team, the team's responsible for that. But I usually don't call specific people out unless they're notoriously a problem. Um, like for example, I had a developer um, about three months ago. Um, you know, he wouldn't show up for meetings. He would check in code that wasn't tested, um, and so I had a couple one-on-ones with him and. I was like, you know, you're not a good fit. Like, you check in code 
and go go out for two days, you don't respond, and that code breaks our build, you break our environment, you actually have the offshore team screaming at you. He was onshore. Oh. <laughs> and, and the offshore team was angry with a couple of his uh, his commits, and uh, we, we had to get rid of him. Yeah, so. you kind of have to see that coming, though, right? Yeah. He can't be yeah. pulling that kind of bullshit and not yeah. see it coming yeah. down the road. So, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll do stuff like that if it's warranted. If it's just like, oh, we have bad practice, or we'll work to fix whatever the organizational problem is and uh, address it that way if we can. And, and some problems, um, like with unit with automated testing, um, culturally, our developers in China are um, you know, 10 years behind us in terms of technology practice. And so developers writing tests is just like, why would I do the QA person's job? So to mitigate that, um, you know, we'll write a lot of tests, but that never got caught on. So it's like, well, okay, we need automation. So we went out and hired four automation engineers and put them on our team. So now we have four extra QA resources. Do you consider them quote unquote DevOps? Uh, no, they're, they're uh, QA test automation. Oh, okay, test automation. Yeah, and, and so we put, ooh, awesome. thank, you. thank you. So we put a bunch of them on our team and um, so yeah, we just mitigate organizational problems, either with staffing or training. And sometimes when the training work doesn't work, you have to do staffing. The number of people out there trying to get good development jobs is insane. Yeah. I mean, how much time do you spend on recs? Like on hiring? Oh, um, I, was, I used to spend a lot more time on it um, when I worked with other firms. Um, Usually I'll just get an email saying you've got five people coming to your project starting next week. Oh, <laughs> so I don't, I'm not too involved with hiring process anymore, which is unfortunate because I love interviewing people. I've interviewed over a hundred candidates in the last five years. Not something I love. I, I love interviewing. Nor do people. I love interview being the interviewee because I suck at it. You should go to a lot more interviews then. Yeah, I guess. I think the best way to become a good interviewee is doing more interviews. Yeah. I interview with companies I'm not interested just to figure out what they're asking. <laughs> okay, I'll do a 30-minute phone screen. Oh, you want to do a code test? I'm suddenly not actually interested. <laughs> oh, that's a nice code test. I'm not going to do anything. Yeah, let's get that. That's funny, yeah. Well, actually, I think that's a good tip. Like somebody who's trying to get out there in the dev space to just to interview. I mean, I know in the Bay Area, it's yeah. ridiculous. The saturation of tech jobs and yeah. dev jobs is just insane. I get four or five uh, LinkedIn messages a day. Yeah. Um, I, got, I t took my phone off my resume, off my LinkedIn profile, off everything because I was getting five or 10 calls Calls. a day on top of LinkedIn messages, occasionally get a Facebook message. What developer likes that? Like I don't. I mean, most you found me on Facebook. I get the most annoying text messages. Hey, Adam, I saw you were in the market. I'm like, <laughs> why? Because I have a LinkedIn profile. <laughs> yes, sir. Would you be interested in working in uh, uh, Northwest New Jersey? And I'm like, <laughs> all right. Well, 
Oh, it pays ten dollars an hour. <laughs> what? <laughs> no. Yeah. I actually get. Or, it. Yeah. or even like even better jobs is like, do you want to go move to uh, King of Prussia? And I'm like, where is that? <laughs> is that next to Mother Russia? <laughs> Apparently, that's in New Jersey too. <laughs> if you're listening, they're really desperate in New Jersey <laughs> for dev jobs. You if you need a job as a developer, <laughs> you don't mind living in Mother Russia. King of Prussia, New Jersey, is hiring. What kind of apps are they building there? That's funny. Yeah, I get people asking me about doing like Java Dev. And I'm like, I have, there's nothing in my LinkedIn that shows that I'm a good Java developer, so. So you work remotely though, oh, yeah. right? And that's, you know, I think something that everybody should aspire to if you have a good work ethic. Has it been a challenge though with Dev? It's been a huge challenge to balance the rest of my life. Yeah. This is easy to be plugged in. You're always on. Especially when you're dealing with time zones, China. Because you have to work with their schedule too. Yeah, having downtime, anything knowledge worker career-wise, having downtime is really hard. Mm-hmm. And then it, is it fun anymore? Still is, so far. How do you make it fun? Take doing, writing the features yourself that you really want to write? I think it's all fun. Like, there's challenges to each part. Um, the biggest issue is politics, which is, I don't like. But I've never really worked in a big company, so I don't know, but I know that it's got to be bad. It's cutthroat. <laughs> yeah, it's got to be bad. But you have to be willing to play the game. You have to learn how to play the game. And fortunately, I work for a manager who's really phenomenal, not only at technology, at management, but also at politics. So it's like, you gotta learn from them and, and see it in action. And really the best way to learn about politics is to watch someone. Yeah, right. Thank, thank, you. thank you. Thanks again. Yeah, no problem. Um, got to devour a whole bunch of bacon, talk tech on a Friday in beautiful Golden, Colorado. Yep. So if somebody wanted to kind of follow the same path you are yeah. on and upwards, besides politics, sure. playing politics, you know, what should they do to, to keep current? Sure. Um, I would usually say read Hacker News, but that's just like Reddit. Hacker News? Really? <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a cop now. I, I find any more of those, those articles are mostly about politics. And, stupid stuff. Um, I really like front-end masters. It's like a front-end masters, okay. It's like plural site, but focused on a lot oh. of um, uh, front-end tech type technologies oh, cool. like Node and React. All practitioner creative. Oh, yeah. yeah. A lot of the authors of those frameworks have actually done a whole entire video series. They're really phenomenal. And so I'll watch a couple hours a week of that. So, in downtime, or while nice. I'm waiting for a production build, or whatever. How do you decide what to learn? What sounds interesting. Which is everything. I mean, it, the space is changing so fast. You know, the current. Or what's relevant to what I'm doing. Yeah. So, learning about the Webpack build system. Watched 10 That's hours it. of video last week on it. Wow. Just because I'm like. Well, we need to solve some caching issues and some performance issues and 
I don't know that much about Webpack. So I went, watched 10 hours worth of content, put it on the 2x speed, so it's, they talk really fast sometimes like this, so really, really fast, really, really fast. I accidentally did that the first time I listened to the podcast, and I'm like, oh shit, is something wrong with the podcast? <laughs> nope. Um, and then, uh, because some of them talk really slow, so when you turn it up to 2x, it actually sounds like a real talking speed. Yeah, like that. Thing. Um, yeah, some of them are just so slow. It's like, are you so slow and monotone? And then you put on two X, and it's like, no, <laughs> it's perfect. Yeah. All right, that ten hour thing became five. It's kind of the theme of, of uh, being a developer, or being in an engineering period. Is you always have to be willing to learn and constantly. And it's not even like you know everybody says I want to learn, but this is like survival. Yeah. <laughs> So, at the firm I'm at now, I'm, I was hired as a senior React developer, and they were like, um, well, senior React developer slash Node developer. And so, for a month, I did an analysis of our reusable API framework that we built in-house. So, did that analysis, that all went great. And they were like, so, we have this uh, internal client. We're looking to build a compliance tracking tool um, and essentially she has a giant spreadsheet of an idea of something she wants to build. So they threw me into that and um, I was given a month to build a proof of concept in React. And so I, I've done a lot of React before, that was fun. Okay, so you already knew React. So I built React, built the app, sold them, it was like a $400,000 deal, um, just firm to firm services and um, well, we got the approval to start the project. So, um, right before we started the project, um, I had a phone call with my boss, and he's like, so, um, we're debating on what framework as a firm we want to standardize on, Angular, Vue, or React. So, um, you need to go learn Vue and go build this thing in Vue, and uh, your project should start in about two weeks. So, I had to go learn all about Vue, master it in two weeks, enough that I I could talk shop to people who've never built Vue, lead a team, train them on Vue, get them up to speed on Vue, and build the application. So two weeks of hardcore videos, trainings, learning, building stuff, um, and I got I got up to speed. I built a proof of concept of the app and released my team on it and, and helped them out along the way and built a lot of components myself and. Had long calls, two three hours. It's like starting the modern at, day hunt. Starting at like <laughs> nine or ten at night, going until midnight, and just talking about code and talking about how we're doing things, and how to structure your code, and how it all works. It took me two weeks to get up to speed. If you didn't love development, you couldn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody could do that. Yeah, and like with. Um, before that, they had me on a, a project for about two weeks, um, kind of in between that. It's kind of fuzzy on time. Why? I'm fuzzy on time, but um, kind of in the middle of like between building the proof of concept and building the real app, they were like, so we want you to evaluate Kotlin as a programming language that we want to implement to build the phase two of our application. So you've already started with the new language. I already, you. Wait, I already start. I built the proof of concept in React. Then they were waiting for funding. They asked me to build something in Kotlin. 
which is a JVM language. And I'm not a JVM developer, so I had to go like, learn Maven, I had to go learn all the build systems, and build a proof of concept, which I did, using Kotlin. And, but, oh wow. Which is like the new like yeah. JVM functional language. Um, and I built that, and I was like, it's pretty cool. It's really fast, because it's on the JVM. Um, but I don't recommend we build it for uh, essentially offshore reasons. Just because it's hard enough to find people that know JavaScript. Right. So, but, so I, I get to learn and build lots of cool stuff like that. Go build a proof of concept doing this. Let's go figure out if this works. Okay. You get to tinker. Yeah, I Which get all nerds. That's I get what they like to do I get paid tinker. good money an hour to tinker. Well, Adam, thank you for uh, joining me. Finally at Cafe 13. I've been bugging this guy for like, no, it's only been two weeks. Two weeks. <laughs> it's not that long. <laughs> a lot of projects. Busy. A lot of projects going on. I know. Um, but thanks for joining me. It's been a lot of fun. Anything else? Got a want lot to ask of me? bacon. Give me one word of inspiration to a developer who is aspiring to management. Because that happens all the time. Yeah. You talk to developers and they're like, yeah, I'd really like to get into management. Maybe the answer is don't. I, I can't give you a one word answer, but I can give you kind of a phrase to think about, which is to think about how you communicate and how you present yourself. And to look at the managers in, in your life that are really good and see how they communicate. Try to model them. So it's being deliberate about your communication, which most techies aren't very good at. Exactly. <laughs> it's not forte. It may not be for everybody. I think that's the bottom line. All right. So be deliberate about your communications and pay attention to those who do it well, essentially. Yeah. All right. We'll leave it at that. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah.